Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides mental health resources for people who are navigating the stigma of an STI diagnosis. Today's guest is the Dildo Duchess herself, hailing from Detroit, Michigan, owner of Spectrum Boutique, oh, author of Carnal Knowledge, which I just there read. You go. these days but you got it you got you got the things uh i sell dildos and i write and those things often go hand in hand and spectrum just celebrated five years in business so it's been a wild five years things have changed a lot in the sex toy industry even in a short period of time (laughs) would we want to say it's been five years like does 2020 count (laughs) Mm, i don't know it's several years I'll take that. I've followed you for a while now, and I've seen various posts of yours, uh, specifically about STIs, sexuality, um, and there were a few times where you mentioned herpes. After seeing you, you know, talk about it, especially like so casually, including with your knowledge of sex education and sharing that, it was only appropriate that we have you on here. I am so grateful that you're willing to have this conversation with me and for making this time for us to be able to record this podcast episode. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I think it's a subject that is taboo for so many people, even though it's a virus that so many of us live with. And there's just so many contextual differences to you know where you have herpes and how you got it and for how long you've had it that really impact how having herpes is for you and so much of that also has to do with access to medication and doctors and that can really also change what it's like the information you have when you find out you have herpes I've definitely talked people through panic around contracting oral herpes And then another person will contract herpes in a genital location, and it's no big deal because they've already had a partner with it, and they're aware of what managing it is like and, like, have a little bit more education. I used to be so terrified of STIs when I was younger, and again, it was because I didn't have information about any STIs, really. Because even when you learn stuff in school, it's like, that doesn't help you when you've got, like, a clump of cauliflower shaped blisters on your crotch that doesn't help you in that moment you know so i've had genital herpes simplex virus type 2 when i looked down the day that i had my first outbreak i equated to feeling like what the surface of a meteor looks like cauliflower (laughs) it kind of fits now that i'm thinking about it but yeah it was terrible And that's what it looked like. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the rest of my life. Turns out that's an outbreak. And it's healed after the three days of taking the medication for it. It was gone. Like, it just looked like it did the day before I had my first outbreak, which is wild to me. And that's what I always thought. And I think a lot of people think that, too, that when you have herpes, this is what it's going to always look and feel like. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, most of the time, the first outbreak is the most intense But, you know, obviously that's not true for everybody. I have had oral type 1 since I was probably born. And I didn't even know that it was herpes, which is a good thing in the sense that I wasn't ashamed of it. And a bad thing in the sense that I gave my high school boyfriend a blowjob with a cold sore, not knowing it was herpes. Gave him that shit. And, you know, like... Navigating that at 16, 17, like, I think we actually did a pretty good job. Like, he wasn't even angry at me. We were just like, oh, oh, you know? So how did you find out that that was it, that your cold sore gave him genital herpes or herpes period? Because, you know, when it's a cold sore, we don't label it herpes. We don't know it is herpes until we do our homework. (laughs) Um, Well, he had, you know, a big singular blister on his dick and it hurt. And he was a freshman in college. So I think he like went to the health center and they were just like, this herpes we're gonna do a swab another thing they don't tell you is that herpes isn't on your standard sti panel first of all and then second of all it's very hard to 
outside of getting all the blood work done, which can be expensive, they have to like swab the actual sore to know what the specific sore you're referencing is. Like if your sore has healed, it could have been an ingrown hair. And yes, you might be testing positive for herpes, but if you don't get the actual sore swabs, you don't know what that specific sore is. And maybe that has changed since then. But I feel like if you're getting STI testing, 99% of the time chlamydia is on the panel you're getting screened on, but herpes isn't. And HIV generally isn't either unless you're requesting it specifically. So I think there's so much we have to change in our language of safer sex as well and that really is relevant to covid as well like i'm writing a piece about covid and dating right now and i'm just realizing how similar the conversations around risk management are it's like the (laughs) same conversation so it should be easy but it isn't Mm -hmm. it's very different obviously yeah (laughs) while you're on that if we look at where we are with covid covid's a virus herpes is a virus scis are often viruses we have mask wearing condom wearing social distancing practicing safer sex with partners. We've got disclosures of, hey, I might have been potentially exposed. You should probably stay away from other people. I might be positive for chlamydia. You should probably not have sex with your other partners. Get yourself tested as well. I'm a personal trainer, and I've had clients who've been like, hey, I might have been exposed, communicated, and then have been so ashamed to say that they tested positive, and they've been like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I was just thinking, I was like, damn, this is your first time disclosing the virus, huh? <laughs> like, must be nice for this to be the first time, and this is your reaction. But I understand it's potentially deadly, right? But with... STIs, all STIs are at this point manageable, treatable, or curable. But the shame of even if you take all of the precautions that you were told to take, it can still happen. So I think that perhaps what we're learning through COVID is for people to have a little bit of grace with themselves and other people, because even though you take the precautions, you might still get it. Yeah, there's no such thing as safe sex or safe socializing not anymore (laughs) you know only safer sex and safer socializing in that sense and yeah it's obviously so different but you're right like a condom isn't gonna protect you from every sti and a mask is not gonna protect you from covid but it is the one thing you can do and studies show it significantly reduces your chances it's the same language almost i remember the one time i got a treatable sti gonorrhea i had been using condoms for everything like i'm talking condoms for blowjobs because i was having so much sex and being very very safe about it and like people were so weirded out that i would be like no we're having a condom blowjob happen right now but everyone would be down with it because they would be like Never had that before. (laughs) If you don't act weird about it, they won't act weird about it. And it was like, literally, I was having so much sex that it's like, condom blowjobs, let's do it, people. Um, (laughs) And I do feel like it is a punchline with oral sex. Like, people are like, dental dams? Who gives those? And it's like, well, I gave somebody herpes from a blowjob. Anyway, back to my point. The one time I got gonorrhea, which is bacterial, I had been using condoms for literally everything, including blowjobs. And I remember thinking, how did I get gonorrhea? This must be a false positive test. And like, maybe it was because I was asymptomatic. That's a good point to make, too, is that we can not have symptoms for some of our STIs. One of my partners, I tested positive for chlamydia and let her know, and she had no symptoms at all. So that's just like where we are with this. That's why it's also important for you to get tested as frequently as fitting for your lifestyle and encouraging partners to get tested and then communication. While we're on communication, this is a very abrupt point to like start talking about this, but I read, I read your book, Carnal Knowledge. I started reading. I was like, all right, I got six days to we record. I was like, it's 120 ish pages. I can probably read 10 a day or something like that. I started reading and I was like, oh, 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 and just couldn't put it down. And so there are very specific points that stood out to me, one of which is the connection to sexual health and mental health. The sex education that myself and many of my previous podcast guests have received really stemmed around abstinence only, 
don't get STIs, don't get someone pregnant, wear a condom, right? So lots of scare tactics. And the deep emphasis on those three things didn't leave room for conversations around relationship management, boundaries, consent, all things that factor into what's come up lately on podcast episodes is abuse. And boundaries, like when people don't learn boundaries in this space, like sexual health, sex education boundaries, it really translates over to them having to figure it out on their own. And with many of the people that I talked to, they weren't able to create, establish, or figure out boundaries until after they somehow made it out of an abusive relationship, a situation where they needed boundaries and did not have them. And this is a thing that even as the author of my own book that discusses this, I still struggle with setting boundaries. And my friend Jiminika, who is a sex educator who educates around trauma and healing a lot, like, I was specifically like, Jiminika, I need you to help me with, like, these specific sections because I know all these things, but these are the things that are easier said than done for me personally, saying no. Not just saying no, it's, like, identifying what the boundary even is for you because I, I think that some of us, especially with a trauma experience, it's like, you just ignore all of that. You ignore all of the what am I feeling aspects of this. And like, I really had a brain that was programmed to be centering my partner's needs and basing my needs and boundaries around what a partner wanted. Because for me, sex was about escaping my home life. It was about having male attention in a way that felt like rescuing me because it was just like if I was choosing the men sexualizing me then I'm not gonna have to be sexualized by people I don't want sexualizing me if I have a boyfriend that I can opt into being sexual with it's like a protection that's how I saw sex and I had terrible boundaries and and I definitely learned my boundaries through awful experiences i'm trying to think about how stis factored into it because it really wasn't until like i had this situation in high school where i gave my boyfriend genital herpes but then stis really didn't come up for me again until i was about to graduate high school i mean i'm jumping all over the place as well but i'm thinking about like when it really came back up for me again and it was because i had a bisexual male partner when i was a senior in high school and I remember going to donate blood at like Red Cross or something like that and you know how they have like the check boxes of like you have not gotten a tattoo in this year or whatever and then there's the check box that's like you have not had sex with men who have sex with men and I was just like oh yeah I do that haha <laughs> not knowing like without any actual test being done on my blood I was immediately treated like oh okay we don't want your blood please leave and I remember thinking oh my god if the doctor or nurse who's about to draw my blood is like making such a big deal about this like have I done a risky thing and not even being able to trust my own internal compass of what safe sex was even though like this was a partner I hadn't even had penetrative sex with I was just like having outer course with but like I was answering that checklist so honestly that I was like oh like I was like putting my faith in the system instead of my own internal compass and I very quickly learned obviously like that's a for-profit situation and like yes we need to screen blood donors for sure but the way in which it was done it taught me this external set of criteria is a better judge of your safety than what you know you have actually done Mm -hmm. and your own awareness it's a complicated thing but that's when i really started having like a wonky compass as far as like what safe sex is or just being like everything i know is in question now yeah i know that is a complete divergence from me trying to artfully change subject to my book but like i do think it is similar because it's like we're figuring out all this stuff at the same time it's not just stis but we are figuring out boundaries and communication all at the same time you mentioned having terrible boundaries i imagine that there's no such thing as terrible boundaries but there's just <laughs> boundaries or no boundaries so would you say there that you your go. terrible boundaries were no boundaries yeah i think you're right that's a better way of phrasing it i didn't have boundaries i think that when we don't have boundaries like we set ourselves up to be in situations where people can sort of capitalize on that because i've been saying this not even 
having in my awareness, like I've been talking about people being able to recognize abuse and be able to prevent themselves from like allowing an abuser into their space to where they have their power or control and completely obliviously not acknowledging that there should be something that's like, hey, don't abuse people. The teaching of boundaries early on really does, in fact, create the fundamentals of how to manage relationships with people, how to just not be a shitty human and how to not allow yourself to be in situations with shitty humans, I guess. But like even then, that's not always under your control in relation to like boundaries and STIs. One of the things that people aren't taught how to do is to seek support or seek help if they need it. So if something's wrong, I don't necessarily feel like I have the resources available for me to be able to reach out to whoever I would see about what's wrong. That even is something that's there because if you're ashamed of getting an STI because you were taught that getting STIs was bad or you're not supposed to get them, what is there beyond the point of prevention to where once you're diagnosed, that was it. Everything that you learned about prevention and what to do, it let you down. You failed, so to speak. So now we have kind of have this like internal thought process of, oh my God, I'm a failure in some cases. Yeah. Or I'm not worthy of love and no one will love me. And how will I ever find a partner in life? And oh, well, I guess I have to find somebody with the exact same diagnosis as me if I want to have a partner. And it's like another thing where it's like, Yes, sex ed should be taught in school, but it really, even perfect, I mean, what is perfect sex, even comprehensive sex ed doesn't, it doesn't do anything when the world around you is not reinforcing that, and if there's, like, STI jokes. When I was in middle school, people were making HIV AIDS jokes all the time because it was this thing we didn't understand that was scary, but it was, like, oh, well, you know, they make jokes about this on South Park and, you know, oh, like, if we can just laugh about it, it's not going to scare us. And I think all of that just comes from a place of not having any knowledge about the reality of it. Just for example, I mean, that's just like something that comes to mind. But then like herpes as well, it is a punchline for people. And at the end of the day, like, it's a cosmetic nuisance that is very painful and yes there are cases where it leads to like more serious health implications but I think it's interesting how we put a lot more fear around things that are like physical or visible STIs I think HPV is a great example too because there's HPV that causes warts and there's HPV that causes cancer and they're generally not the same strains i'm sure that that is also something that like may have changed since i got that information but i think it's so interesting how the physical aspect of it is what causes the fear because it's feeding into the larger romance sex myths of like hollywood movies not just porn but this like romance idea of like oh i have to be this like perfect virginal person and even if you didn't get raised with the purity rings and stuff like that it's so deeply embedded in our society that like yeah you immediately want to tell yourself there's like all this negative self-talk that starts coming up even when that's not your home environment you gave me a few things that i wanted to touch on one of the things (laughs) is trauma Towards the end of Carnal Knowledge, you spoke about healing sex. An STI diagnosis is, in fact, a traumatic experience, and it shapes people different ways. Like, different people respond to different things differently. Um, In many of the cases of people that I've spoke to who have tested positive for herpes, for instance, oftentimes the way that they receive their diagnosis is the way that they go on about disclosing or uh, navigating the stigma, even, if you will. So there's kind of this disconnection from the body or disassociation, even. I've heard from people not wanting to touch themselves. And eventually, like, starting out, they don't want to be touched by anyone else. But over a while, like, skin hunger is a thing. And you begin to want for someone else to want you without having gone through the path of wanting or desiring or feeling comfortable or even accepting yourself being able to touch your own body. You mentioned masturbation as a way of, I don't think you use these words of reconnecting to the body, but those were the dots that I connected 
being able to pleasure yourself, know what feels good for you, and then being able to have opportunities for healing sex. Because I mean, even that in itself is a way of healing sex and like reframing the narrative around the sexual trauma of an STI diagnosis by just being able to do that alone. Definitely. I think you're touching on, I mean, it's this is the title of a, a book about trauma, but the body keeps the score in the sense of our, our physical body definitely hangs on to memory in its own way that is certainly connected to the brain, but isn't conscious in the same way. And the same can be true for non-STI skin conditions like psoriasis if you experience a you know like a physical sensation on your skin or or pain that's prolonged over time I mean it's really hard to feel sexy and and embrace parts of our body that have caused us pain And, and sometimes the pain is also not knowing or not remembering what has caused that like I to this day do not masturbate with my hands I have sex toys that I use and there's so many reasons I could like hypothesize as to why that is but I'm like 99% sure it has to do with trauma you know and there's like a reason it's like there's just such an aversion to a certain kind of touch and you know maybe sometimes it's just the way your body is but I do think that like our body hangs on to memory in such a different way and I think herpes also can really impact our desire not to want to be intimate with other people but with ourselves even without herpes people are afraid of touching their body not necessarily because they're like my palms will get hairy or whatever stereotype myths we get told by churches or whatever but just literally like that self-connection is not something intuitive for everybody especially if like me you defined sexuality as something being centered around your dick having partners pleasure you Mm -hmm. know so it's like protection too like like our our trauma brain does stuff to protect us and you know that's good my therapist always reminds me like your brain's trying to protect you when you're having this response and that doesn't mean that it's like good and doesn't mean it's not something we want to change and work through but like our brain is smart at protecting us from stuff and so much of sex happens in the brain yeah (laughs) yeah sex is like it's it's the what the biggest uh sexual organ or the what what is it is there is that a thing or am i making that up i mean yeah i mean it's kind of like a cheeky joke of like the brain is the biggest sex organ because like you could be like well i've got a bigger sex organ than my brain (laughs) but uh yeah i mean (laughs) in the sense that like i mean i'm not one of these people but people can have an orgasm without stimulating any typical erogenous zone i.e the crotch or nipples like there are people who can have full body orgasms from massage and stuff like that in that sense like an orgasm is chemicals in your brain and contraction of muscles at the end of the day um and i don't think we should define sex by orgasm but many people do Mm -hmm. (laughs) there was a part where you were just speaking I felt compelled to bring up stigma. A lot of what we begin to believe about, you know, our sexualities, our identities after a diagnosis. Now, in your case, like, you got cold sores. So this wasn't an STI diagnosis for you. But for some, it it can be for somebody else. Like, how does that feel for you when you are the carrier of what is seen as an STI but you didn't get it <laughs> as an SDI. Like, it wasn't sexually yeah. transmitted to you, but you can sexually transmit it to partners. Like, mm-hmm. what does that feel like for you? Is there any stigma for you navigating life with oral herpes having not been diagnosed genitally? Yeah, definitely. Sexually. Also, uh, I said genitally, but I meant to say sexually. <laughs> it's okay. My, I'm having a... My live got interrupted, so I'm back. I think you're posing that question in a great way. I actually have had blood work come back where the doctor tried to, like, sit me down and be like, did you know that you have HSV-1? And I'm like, 
Yes. I mean, and it was over the phone that they told me this, no. and they were really trying to like be like, "Oh my God, are you are you sitting down?" And so I completely can see how someone's shitty way of telling you about your diagnosis can impact that. But that was not the case for me. I think it helps me in explaining to other people like how to elevate the safer sex elevator pitch. Like it didn't used to be a part of my safer sex conversation because I didn't realize it should be. And to this day, so many people ask if I get cold sores and, you know, roughly 85% of the population has cold sores, do I have to disclose? And I hear all kinds of opinions about this. Ultimately, obviously, disclosure is the best thing here. It's the kind of thing where your average person is not going to disclose that in an STI conversation. So then when I'm the one, kind of like with the condom blowjob, it's like if I'm bringing this up, it's like, instilling a paranoia in your potential partner that they like hadn't considered before because like the second i bring up a condom blowjob they're like what do you have that we need yeah, to use a condom yeah. for something like, i don't well, use a condom for? and then the similarly the way i would say it is like i get cold sores sometimes had them since birth i get them about like every three or four years at this point that doesn't mean i couldn't give it to you but like i know what it feels like and viral shedding is a thing so like just so you know but also like do with that information what you will what do you think should i uh give you a concept blowjob do you want to think about that for a little bit and then like uh, again most of the time they're like oh i get cold sores too thanks sure you know like me making a big i mean big deal it shouldn't be a big deal but like me weaving that into the conversation is like weird for people and i think that's like also why people don't want to do it because it's like a disclosure but then they're like does this really matter and it's like yeah it does and we actually published a wonderful article on the spectrum journal that's like a dissection of the like oral herpes disclosure and also genital herpes but just like how people think that it's like this separate thing i know so many people whose diagnosis really did shape their life and the way it was told to them and also the age they got it at like i had a boyfriend who had gotten genital herpes when he was 16 and he was just like so used to the converse and you know it was like 10 years later or something like that that he was like I've been having this conversation for my entire sexual life. And then, you know, I've met people in their 40s who get it in their 40s, and it kind of knocks them off their feet for a couple of years, and, and they reevaluate their sex life. Not that the age we get diagnosed always determines that, but I think while the physical aspects of it are part of what makes it difficult, it's also the completely reframing the way you have sex that freaks people out if you haven't already been having those conversations it sounds so daunting to be like wait i need to like have a whole conversation with everybody before i have sex with them what like yeah you should have been doing that all along but now you're really going to be thinking about it if you're trying to be communicative which we all should i found myself in this space through hosting the podcast and talking about sexual health where i now know the importance of this conversation because prior to my diagnosis I didn't know the importance of this conversation the extent of it was are you on birth control alright like I'm wearing this condom and that was just kind of what it was up until I got to the point where I ended up testing positive for HSV now I have to disclose right through my educating myself about herpes and learning about other STIs and learning about how to navigate disclosure, my diagnosis, how to tell partners and learning more on top of that about sex education and then creeping into this space of mental health and boundaries and negotiations and seeing like a whole new spectrum see what I did there, of uh, how to have sex, like ways to have sex outside of intercourse. Whenever I'm sexually active with a new partner and I initiate the conversation about, first off, just disclosing my HSV status, and then also on top of that, asking them questions about their status and their testing routine and what things they like. When we even get to the section about pleasure, you know, what do you like? What don't you like? People's heads explode. The women that I talk to about that, they're often like, I'm sorry, no one's ever asked me that. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. 
No, you bring up a great point that it's like people are so afraid of this conversation, but it's like you should be having this conversation even if, you know, hypothetically, neither person has had any sexual contact with anybody else. Like, you should still be having this conversation because it includes all the pleasure aspects. Like, we can not make it this uncomfortable, sterile conversation by then. And it doesn't have to be so robotic, but, like, it's a mental checklist. Like, you're going to have all this conversation about harm reduction and not even, like, ask any questions about pleasure. And I think, like people in kink spaces are good at exercising that muscle because of you know consent regarding impact play for instance but it's like i don't care if you're having the most vanilla sex whatever it's still a relevant conversation and at the end of the day i didn't feel this way before i had done all my own self-education but I feel safer with a person who does have herpes and knows their status and is aware and managing versus a person who's like, no, I don't have anything. It's always followed by what? Do you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm clean. Are you, are you clean? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I feel so much safer and attracted to a person who's just like, yeah, I've had herpes, uh, you know, for the last 10 years and I'm on Valtrex, whatever. And. Uh, I don't get outbreaks very often, but like, I will let you know if I ever feel a tickle, you know? Yeah, that's it. That's it. And that's how simple it is. I think that we overcomplicate it because we don't have uh, a blueprint for how to navigate conversations like disclosure. Again, STD prevention looks like get tested and don't have an STI. What's there for when you get an STI? Like, what are the resources that are available to you outside of pamphlets that we leave the office with that say, this is how many people have herpes. Here's the statistics for HSV-1, HSV-2. Oh, There's been so many times I've, like... Cramping. No, don't worry about me. Go ahead. You you keep talking. I was going to say, there's so many times I've, like, earnestly grabbed a a pamphlet trying to, like, get a bit of comfort on an issue, and I'm just like, oh, this is not helping, like... Like, I put too much trust in a pamphlet sometimes. I'm like, "Mm, get this away from me. Yeah, yeah. And I think that these pamphlets really should include, like, okay, here's what to do now. Um, Because there's so much misinformation that comes from uh, medical professionals. When many of us have received our diagnosis, we were told things like, oh, well, just wear a condom, you'll be fine. Just take the medication and you won't be able to give it to someone. And these healthcare providers speak in absolutes, like wear a condom and you won't get an STI. Like that language that we were taught, that goes out the window. The first time that you have unprotected sex and no one gets pregnant and no one gets an STI, now your safe sex practices looks like what? Like what does it look like to have safe sex if your whole reason prior to that was I'm going to work on it because I don't want to get anybody pregnant. I don't want to get an STI. And then you have sex and neither of those things happen. You kind of lose a little bit of your enthusiasm for protection use, I want to say, because it goes against everything that you've been taught. So now we get into the point of there's no conversation really that I've seen at least about how to have safer sex if you're going to be using no protection with a partner or if you're using sex toys with partners. So we get into like queer sex or sex that isn't with a person with a penis and a person with a vulva. As we get into these kinds of conversations, what are safer sex practices for people who are having non-traditional forms of sex or the kinds of sex that we weren't talked to about? Yeah, great question. First thing that comes to mind is how people, I don't think, use condoms to their full potential. Or not just condoms, like any type of latex or non-latex barrier. People don't use lube with them the vast majority of the time. And then they complain, oh, it's frictiony. Oh, it feels like shit. Oh, I hate this. And it's like, you aren't putting lube on this condom and they're like, is definitely, I don't want to say a right and a wrong way to do it, but like putting a little drop of lube inside the reservoir tip of a condom goes so far and you don't want to put so much lube in it that the condom fucking comes off. Cause like, trust me, I've been there, but not just on the outside, but a little bit on the inside of the tip. And people think that because a condom is pre-lubricated that okay, well, it's lubricated. I have all the lubricant I need. Hell 
No. Internal rug burn? Do you really want internal rug burn? Yeah, seriously, like putting a drop of lube inside the condom. I don't remember where I read that, but I did it, and that made it, it, it was different. It was way different. And then even yeah. using lube for condoms, like regardless of how wet a partner would get, like that's made it more pleasurable. And like to the point where partners have been like, oh, what'd you do? Usually when I try this, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. It's like, oh, I just, I feel amazing. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> So I was saying that at a, um, it was like an HIV conference, a small one here in St. Louis, and they were like, female condom. I was like, oh, the internal condom. I'm correcting them. I'm making, I think that I'm using more <laughs> inclusive language in correcting yeah, yeah. them by saying internal condom. There was another sentence exchange, and then they go, female condom. And then they had me questioning my shit, like, well, maybe you can't use it anally, and that's why they call it the female condom. But then, like, I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to just let them have this one. But under my breath, before I walked away, I was like, internal condom. <laughs> I won. <laughs> one of the things that comes up continually in regards to safer sex is really communication. How sexy is communication? Like, we can, like, we can just talk about that. Like, with my experiences... I find that, you know, while partners' heads explode with the questions that I'm asking, oftentimes they may not really know how to answer that. So in those instances, given that I have consent to whatever we talked about, there are areas that for them may have gone unexplored, that may have gone explored for me, or, you know, the other way around. And so more often than not, to me, there's more freedom in exploration when there's communication. Ooh, that should be the episode title. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I like that. If someone hasn't been touched in a certain spot or way or they like go, you know, I really like it when I'm in this position and we do it at this tempo and there's like an added sense of relaxation and safety that can occur between partners because that dialogue's been had and they feel more like pleasure rather than I want to just please you. I don't know if you've ever seen Coming to America. Someone who listens yes. to this podcast has seen Coming to America. The part where the king brought a wife for the prince and he was like, she'll do whatever you tell her. And then she's like, well, what do you like to do? Whatever your wish is. Like, your wish is my command. I don't want you to only want this for me because I think that's also like a reciprocated thing. If I'm someone who likes giving or if you're someone who likes giving, I think people naturally enjoy the pleasure of giving pleasure to a partner totally there's a pleasure in giving that may be a little bit different than receiving is but the lines of communication really open that up mm -hmm. for the freedom of exploration absolutely i mean it's like you're like a sexy investigator in the sense of like not just with a new partner but we are constantly changing and evolving waking up every day a different person so the conversation never stops even with a partner you've been with for a long time and I think the reason that asking questions about pleasure are so important are a little bit more obvious I think that that communication also really makes you feel comfortable to let go because you feel assured that if something were to go not according to plan that like I have communicated with this person and I now trust them more because we have had this moment of being real with each other before we're having our bodies be so intimate we're being intimate with our, our words and our brains and now I know that if shit does hit the fan I know I can call you up and we're gonna like be able to handle this together I'm not gonna feel shamed or ostracized by you if we get you know someone gets an STI someone gets pregnant whatever I now know that we have this foundation laid for us to really let go and enjoy the pleasure because if in the back of your mind you're worrying about something you've now addressed that but it's so hard to have an orgasm in front of somebody sometimes and I know it's not true for everybody but sometimes that little bit of your brain is worrying about something and you can't even enjoy the moment you know if you don't have that conversation like your brain is going to be more distracted by negative shit and there's just infinite reasons yeah. that we should be having these conversations. But even if you want to be 100% selfish, 
I've just given you a million reasons to do it too. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> There's something about a person knowing what they like and being able to communicate it. You know, yeah. going back to the beginning of our conversation, we talked about boundaries and how sex education kind of is, uh, it, it omits aspects of personality, relationship management, um, consent. Being able to say no, in my opinion, is just as important as being able to ask for what you want. And a lot of people don't know how to ask for what they want, partially maybe because they don't know what they want. On the other end of the spectrum, it could be that they just may feel ashamed to ask for what they want. I interviewed a guy who, even in our interview, you know, this is a shame-free space. He was like afraid to say that he saw a dominatrix and they were into pegging. I was like, bro, like this is the same space. Don't you know that like I, I'm familiar with anatomy, like only because I follow accounts like yours and a bunch of other sex educators to know like, oh, that's that's a thing there that that's a place of exploration. You don't have to worry about being seen in a certain light because you like a particular activity. But that just goes to show you for a lot of people, it could be harmful to them ask for what they want just as much as it is to say no. So like how in your experience, expertise, can we not only get more comfortable with you know saying no, but also get more comfortable in asking for what it is that we want? Yeah, great question. I think that practicing in platonic situations is a good way to exercise that muscle even over you know, tiny shit with your roommates, uh, negotiation around household things. I find that that actually has helped me really exercise that muscle. It's obviously not the same thing, but I find for me, at least the issues with saying no extend far outside of a sexual context and into platonic ones. My therapist one time gave me the analogy of like, let's say you really want to see this movie. I mean, I know we don't go to movie theaters anymore, but you really want to see a movie and you ask your friend to go with you and they don't like really want to see the movie, but they want to just like make you happy and go see the movie you want to see. And then you go pick them up and they get in the car and they're like, "Eh, okay, let's go see this movie. They're ruining the movie for you, you know? And I think it's the same thing. Like, I think it's, selfish to not be honest sometimes because we're afraid of honesty and we want to do the more comfortable thing so we are making life more crappy for everybody involved because we aren't gonna just take the second to say the thing that maybe makes us a little uncomfortable but makes everybody happier in the long run and I think just reminding ourselves of even if your friend is like maybe offended like what you don't want to go see this movie it's gonna be amazing like they're like they're gonna get over it and they're gonna be happy that they can now just go enjoy it on their own or go see the movie with a different friend now i think for the people pleasers like myself that is a way of reframing it that can help where you're actually doing what's best for everybody by saying this shit that feels uncomfortable until you get used to it okay I like that bit of advice there, just practicing asking for what you want and the analogy of the movie theater, because that puts it into perspective. Hell no, I don't want to go to the movies with you if you're not enthusiastic about coming to see this movie with me. I like to go to Comic-Con conventions and dress up. I had a girlfriend who was like, why didn't you ask me if I wanted to go? You don't like these things. You wouldn't have fun. (laughs) And then they're like, no, I'm going to do it. And then dress up and not have a good time. Like I'd much rather go with my handful of friends or, you know, if, and and oftentimes like partners are threatened by other um, partners of the same sex. So like those kinds of relationships. And I know that she did that just so I wouldn't go with somebody else who was excited about it. Right. But these are very good examples of being able to ask for what you want and being able to uh with the movie analogy i kind of lost what i was saying because my phone went off and i got a notification but (laughs) that yeah it's a good it's a good way of looking at it you know if i ask you hey do you want to have sex and you're like i guess like oh i don't think i want to i'll go i'll be in the other room for about 10 minutes let let me uh get my phone (laughs) right yeah exactly (laughs) but um curiosity comes up for me when you talk about like how when you talk to partners about sex, everyone gets a condom blow job. So like you're <laughs> fairly open 
about your sexuality. And I think that obviously you own a, you sell dildos, right? And you are the face of the company. It makes but, one event open, yes. Yeah, so how do we get to this space? Like, have you always just been this open? Is there something specific about your background or your first sexual experience that allowed for you to be as open as you are about sexuality? And for context, like, when I speak with people who've had their first sexual experience, for instance, sort of shapes the ones after that. Like, these are their expectation. If it's like, ah, you know, sex always hurts. For the last 12 years that they've been having sex, this is what they expect from partners until they have a different kind of an experience to compare that one experience to. Are there ways, are there places or resources that are available for people to be able to kind of know what sex is supposed to feel like from a pleasure perspective so that we can not only reframe, you know, the narrative or belief that we have about how sex is supposed to be, but also how it can be? Yeah, I I think that there are so many internet resources, and sometimes they are hard to find. It's easy to find general resources, and then finding more specific resources can be more challenging depending on what you're looking for. For me, it was a lot of personal experimentation and definitely sexual trauma leading to a desensitization around the subject where I had to kind of rediscover it as an adult in a positive way I took a lot of risks because I was so desensitized to what sex is and I you know just I would do kind of whatever was thrown that way like okay you want me to be a human ashtray great let's do that you know like I I was really being I mean and, and it can be positive exploration and I think a lot of it was but I also think that for me, my late teens, early 20s was really about just throwing shit against a wall and seeing what stuck, unfortunately. And that's not a way I would advise people to do it, but I think it does end up turning out that way. And I am so happy I've come to a place as an adult where I feel like I approach sexuality in a much more healthy way. But it's like, just part of becoming an adult for me I mean this is a terrible comparison but like it takes a long time to figure out how to like manage money (laughs) and I'm just thinking about like adult things that come with adult responsibilities and sex is an adult thing with an adult responsibility and that's part of what makes life so tricky is like I'm constantly asked sex questions where I'm like, I could give you a couple potential routes of getting to where you want to go, but ultimately me prescribing a path for you is not going to help you so much as, you know, like you do need to forge your own path um, to, to figure out what works for you because also not everyone's a visual learner, not everyone's an auditory learner. I think that it's a lot of trial and error that takes patience and understanding with yourself and also just letting go of the expectations like sure watch porn pay for it and you know if you're paying for it especially if you're getting it directly from a content creator directly it's more quote-unquote ethical that's a side conversation getting rid of expectations that media sets for us around sex is a really great way to approach sexuality if you have no idea where to start just kind of like analyzing what we see in movies and porn versus what we read in sex positive blogs i always recommend people going to scarlatine which is an information resource site that is geared towards teens but really is great for everybody the spectrum journal is a online publication that I edit I'm the editor of I also publish stuff there sometimes and we certainly don't have every subject covered but I'm trying to create a place where I can search endometriosis and find an article on it that is going to be written by somebody within a sex education space because so often like what we find on WebMD is just as damaging as what we can find in a negative porn space and it's so hard to know how to tell the difference. The conversation about sex is just so different because of the internet for kids today. I mean, that just is so obvious. And 
instead of trying to censor kids from the internet, providing the context to understand the stuff they will inevitably come across is so important so that when something is seen, there's information for understanding instead of assuming, oh, all sex is lubeless anal or whatever. So being able to confidently talk about it or seek out the information, I think there's a connection between having the willingness to seek the information and being able to have spaces and people that you can have conversations with. Definitely. Yeah, and if you are an adult and there's no young person in your life, and I mean, again, it, it, it has to be appropriate, but like, I, I think it is important for young people to have trusted adults in their life besides just a, a teacher and a parent, whether it's like your mom's best friend who, you know, like has dinner with you every, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, there are so few young people in my life anymore that I am starting to have friends with kids and that's been a really new experience for me as far as just like watching the way kids intake the internet and like watching the way kids deal with like bodily consent in a non-sexual manner hugs etc you know not assuming my friend's kid wants to give me a hug or even a high five you know like <laughs> oh boy there's just a lot a lot to I can't wrap my mind around like when every six-year-old has an iPhone like what the fuck do you do uh, one of the things that I'm learning for sure is that being able to open up the lines of dialogue between yourself and kids people in general it invites them to when they need to or want to have some kind of conversation. That's what I was getting at, yeah. yes. <laughs> Just bring it, bring it to you. Like, hey, this is what I'm doing. Or like, even if you ask, hey, what are you looking at? Oh, I was watching this website called dot, dot, dot. And then you can go check that shit out yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I think also between adults, we need to have conversations about the uncomfortable subjects and sexuality that we don't want to talk about. And like, I'm just thinking about this because of like, safety and kids and I'm also listening to the Lolita podcast by Jamie Loftus which is kind of a dissection of uh, Lolita's impact on our sexual culture and just culture in general and I think that if we, if we don't talk about subjects that make us uncomfortable like you know like we have to be able to talk about uh, adults who are attracted to minors in order to know how to address this issue in our society and again that's like completely different than these other subjects but like we have to be able to talk about STIs in order to be able to have safer sex as a society and not just like on an individual level yeah. if we aren't talking about this stuff then how's it going to trickle down to everyone who needs to hear it who isn't going to go and do that research on their own yeah um, I forgot that we were even talking about STIs. I got so caught up in the <laughs> sex education piece. Like, it is related. It's all interconnected. And it's so fascinating that something that happens all the time that is pleasurable for many isn't always for some is so untalked about. But, like, for me, you know, hearing you talk and be able to have this dialogue, like, it's exciting. Like, I'm learning and I'm absorbing all of this. And I'm hoping that the people who are tuned into the live or the people who are listening are able to get something out of this as well. Because it's a game changer in how we can navigate our sexual experiences moving forward. So, yeah. wrapping this all up, uh, I'm going to go through and check out the... Um, comments on the instagram live here uh someone just asked what podcast do y'all host well i host the something positive for positive people podcast and in short i interview people with herpes about their experiences from diagnosis to disclosure zoe i'm a guest on this podcast <laughs> oh i'm talking about you is yours not out? oh is yours not out did i what do, do you not have the podcast oh no i do i do my boyfriend and i um we have Hot Brain. It's Hot Brain Pod on Instagram. We talk about all kinds of things, and we'll have you as a guest in the future. We are on, like, a little hiatus at the moment, but it's just sex conversations. We've been doing more interview episodes lately. There's really no specific topic other than just, like, sex and society. Yeah, I was sitting there. I was like, I know you told me you have a podcast, but I was oh, like, no, oh, I shit, did I give it away? <laughs> all right, cool. No sneak peeks here. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me see if I can 
get through some of these without messing anything up. Okay, I'm looking also. Okay, cool. I don't cool. see any questions, just a lot of love. Uh, someone asked, can you get HSV2 if you already have HSV1? If yes, shouldn't we also be asking them to be tested? Uh, I'm assuming that this is in a relationship where one person has HSV1 and the other has HSV2. It is possible to have HSV1 and HSV2. Uh, body keeps the score. Yes, that is an amazing read. And oh, I think I, I also, just oh, um, yeah, I, jumped. I think if you want a shorter read, because like I struggle to get through long ass books about trauma, if you want a shorter read, Trauma is Really Strange is like 20 pages and it's illustrated and it's really good to get through in a, one sitting. <laughs> I like it. Um, that's it then. Yeah, that's all we got from uh, the listeners. Hey, if anyone has any questions, if you're in here and you want to ask a question real quick, like. We can stay for, yeah, go for it. a little. Thanks for all the. I, we've had like some steady viewers, so I think that uh, hopefully this stuff is resonating with y'all. Yeah, hopefully. I think that like honestly, some of the most popular posts I've made have been like just like me with my cold sore, being like, "Let's talk about herpes," because people are like, "Oh my god." People are like, oh my god, so brave, you're posting a cold sore pic. I'm like, is it that brave? I don't know. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I, people will tell me like how brave I am for being open about having herpes and talking about it. But I think the better word is privilege more than anything. Yeah. Because I don't have to worry about discrimination from the workplace. I don't have to worry about, you know, like partners hitting me up and being like, why'd you do that? You know that so-and-so knows that. I know you and you're telling them that I have her, you know what I mean? So like the, yeah. the trickle down effect of one person being open about having herpes and then other people being like, well, uh, if you have herpes and you dated so-and-so for a while and I know y'all had sex, does that mean so-and-so has herpes? That is not always the case, but yeah, yeah that's just a thing. It's a product of stigma and that's just like an assumption that people make that they can't talk about their herpes status not even to potential sexual partners and the relationships will just kind of cut off and die out right then and there at the point of all right i should disclose but i'm deciding i'm not going to and i'm going to just ghost or leave this person alone or make up some kind of an excuse people can't think ahead also like like think about a week from now like what if you give somebody an STI that you know you have and then they get the STI and you haven't had a conversation about it like oh well that slightly uncomfortable situation of you having to talk about it has now really gone to a even more difficult place I think people don't think about the future and the implications their actions have because they are just trying to have an instant gratification and we need to think longer term about like what's sustainable and what is healthy for ourselves and our partner. Mm. Come on. Yeah. That is the truth. All right. So no more questions. Um, this podcast episode will be uploaded to the something positive for positive people podcast feed over the course of we got January. It'll be uploaded in February. So if you can just stick around or like, not stick around to the live, but like follow H on my chest, follow Thongria. Um, we'll have like pieces up for when the podcast is going to be released. I'm going to edit it and get it out there to the world. I so much appreciate you making the time to come on the show and share your experience and your expertise. Um, how can people find you? Uh, Thongria. So the word thong with the R-I-A after it is my personal stuff on Instagram and Twitter. The uh, sex toy store I run on Instagram is Shop Spectrum Boutique and SpectrumBoutique.com. There's a link to the journal, the educational magazine, and everything there. Uh, Hot Brain Pod is the podcast, and Carnal Knowledge is my book. It is a wonderful conversation starter, a great Valentine's Day gift. Even uh, this might be airing after Valentine's Day. Before. But, you know. I'll get it up before. Well, then go get yourself a copy for Valentine's Day. <laughs> yes. 
All right. Thank you so much. Um, again, this is Something Positive for Positive People, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that connects people who've experienced the trauma of an STI diagnosis to mental health support resources. Um, I can be followed on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Reddit at H on my chest. If you want to support us, you can leave a donation. You can visit www.spfpp.org and there's options to how you can contribute. Um, we're essentially creating some sort of a mental health resource hub so that we can connect people who are struggling with their diagnosis to um, mental health resources. I mean, that's it flat out. Um, yeah, so if you listen to the podcast, leave us a review and subscribe to it. Till next time, yeah. stay sex positive. Anything else you want to say? No, that was amazing. Thank you. All right. I'm... Five is done. Damn, I can't save it. No. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna have I to. Hate that. I'm gonna have to just share it. <laughs> Yeah, no, do it, do it. All right. Fuck. That's good, too, because then I can reshare. Okay. Here, I'm going to stop my audio recording, and we transfer it to you. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah, I can stop mine now, too.